Well, good morning, church. Good to be here today with you. You know, last week we finished reading through the Old Testament in our 31-week series called The Story. And this week we began to read through the New Testament. We began, as would make sense, with Jesus' birth narratives. We read about Jesus' miraculous birth in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And each of these Gospels tells the incredible story of how Mary and Joseph became the earthly parents of Jesus. And although Matthew and Luke each tell the story from a little different perspective, we tend to combine the two stories together to make the story that we tell at Christmas time. It is in these stories that we find the angels and the shepherds, the wise men, the innkeeper, Mary, Joseph, and the little baby Jesus. Mark's gospel passes over these stories all together, and he chooses to begin at the point where Jesus is already an adult ready to begin his earthly ministry. These three books, known as the Synoptic, Synoptic Gospels describe the events of Jesus' life from a very similar point of view, and they contain a lot of the same material. And then there's John. <laughs> there's John, and he begins his testimony of Jesus in a very different way. He begins at the beginning. Not the beginning of Jesus' life as a little baby, but at the very beginning, the beginning of time itself. He begins with the story of creation. Take a listen to this passage from the opening of John's gospel and hear in it the echoes of creation from Genesis. I'm reading from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John starts telling the story of Jesus in a very different way than any of the other three gospel writers, doesn't he? None of the familiar Christmas story images are here. 
In fact, when you read through the entire gospel of John, it is quite different than the other three in its entirety. John differs in the style of Jesus' teaching and in the order of events of Jesus' life. This first passage in John's gospel is often called the prologue, and it functions in much the same way that an overture does in a symphony or in a musical. It sets the tone for, and it gives you some glimpses of what is to come. A couple of weeks ago, my wife Marge and I went downtown to the Aronoff to see Les Miserables. And to begin the show, the orchestra struck up some music and they played a prologue that included parts of several of the well-known songs that we would hear in their entirety a little bit later in the show. Well, in a similar way, John sets several themes in the prologue that will appear throughout the Gospel of John. And one of these themes is that Jesus is the revelation and the presence of God. You see, in John, the Word of God is God's creative force, and it is the power bringing all things into being It's the thing that holds all things together in the universe. This word was present in the very beginning of time, and John identifies the word of God as Jesus Christ, the Father's only Son. Now, the prologue of John's gospel has been influential for Christian theology throughout the ages. It still shapes our theology today. It has formed our belief that Jesus was not created by God, but rather has eternally coexisted with God along with the Holy Spirit. The church has given verbal expression to this theology in the words of the Nicene Creed, especially in these words, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. The mystery of Jesus being both completely divine and completely human is also captured by John in the prologue. He writes the word became flesh and lived among us. This word, the word that John tells us about here comes from the Greek word logos. This word was first used by a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus around 600 B.C., and he used it to designate the divine reason or the plan that coordinates a changing universe. Our word logical in English comes from this same word. And when Greeks heard the word logos, they would have thought of the logical, rational principle that they believed governed the world. The Greeks believed that there was this invisible, intelligent, integrating force behind the universe holding it all together. Plato offered the possibility 
that one day a word, a logos, would usher forth from God. And so John picks up on this Greek concept, and he said to the Greeks, this idea that you have of the logos governing everything, you're so close to the truth. He's saying there is such a power in the world. If there was not such a power in the world, then our being here would simply be the result of some kind of cosmic accident. But John is saying you are no accident. There is this logical, rational, intelligent power behind the universe. And John understands this power as God. And John is saying that Force, that Logos became one of us that first Christmas, became a human being so that we might know God. We call this the incarnation, and it means that the Word took on our human flesh. We have other words like this, don't we? Carnivore, someone who eats meat, chili con carne. I'm getting hungry for lunch, you could tell. Chili with meat. That comes from the same root word. The famous Christmas carol that we sing every year, written by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In it, he wrote a lyric about the incarnation where he writes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. My friends, if you understand incarnation, you understand the core, the very heart of Christian belief. And it is one of the beliefs that makes Christianity so different from all of the other world's religions. On one hand, you have some other world religions that say that God is so imminent in all things that that incarnation is the norm. For a follower of Buddhism or Hinduism, God is present in everything. God is the divine spark in everything, and therefore incarnation is possible. God is incarnate in all sorts of people and things. And yet, on the other hand, religions like Islam and Judaism say God is so transcendent, so holy, so completely set apart from material things that incarnation is impossible. To say Jesus is divine is blasphemous. And this makes Christianity unique. We don't say that that incarnation is the norm, but we also don't say that it is impossible. Christianity says that God is so close and so present that it is possible, but that He is also so transcendent that the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ is a unique event. The incarnation of God in Jesus is an extraordinary event that is unique in the entire history of the world. And yet at the same time, so much of the way that God chose to make himself known to us in Jesus is so very ordinary. The incarnation first became visible in the little town of Bethlehem. Much of the story surrounding Jesus' birth was ordinary. His mother and his earthly father, Mary and Joseph, were pretty ordinary people. A young girl 
engaged to be married to a man whose trade was carpentry. They weren't rich. They weren't very influential. And like everyone else at that time in history, they had to take off time from work and under the difficult circumstances of being far along in a pregnancy to go from their home to their ancestral home, the home of their birth, to register for the census. I guess we can all be thankful in this year of 2020 as we take a census here in the United States, you get it mailed to your home and you can fill it out right there. Maybe even do it online. You don't have to go back to wherever you were born to do that. So we've made something simpler, haven't we? And although the Bible is pretty silent on Jesus' years of growing up, we do know that he went to Jerusalem with his parents to celebrate the religious festivals at the temple, as did everyone else. We have the story of one such journey when he was 12 years old. I expect that he played with friends, that he learned the Torah, that he did chores around his house, that he learned the trade of carpentry from his father. I find it fascinating to think about why God chose such ordinary circumstances for his one and only son to be born into. But then... If you really want to get to know what something is like that you haven't ever experienced before, you have to really enter into the experience, don't you? It's kind of like when you travel to another country. I mean, you can never really appreciate what life is like there or to fully appreciate the experience of the people who live there until you enter into it. It's only when you learn some of the language when you try the local food at the local places, when you experience the culture, the local, the, the local people, how they live, how they work, how they worship, then and only then do you begin to learn a little bit better what it's like to be Chinese or Brazilian or French. Just try to imagine the gulf that existed between God creator of the universe who is perfect and sinless and all-powerful and humanity, the created ones, imperfect, sinful, and powerless. Even though God created us, how could God ever know us, really know us, and what it's like to be us? So God decided to become one of us. God put on the flesh of a human being and was born of a woman. I don't think we very often think about what it must have been like for Jesus to be a real human being, but I like to do that. There's one song that I like to listen to every year at Christmas time. I play it. It's by one of my favorite Christian artists, Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's called This Baby. And the lyrics tell of Jesus' humanness and his divinity in such a great way, I think. Some of the lyrics go like this. Well, he cried when he was hungry, did all the things that babies do. He rocked and he napped on his mother's lap and he wriggled and giggled and cooed. There were the cheers when he took his first steps and the tears when he got his first teeth. Almost everything about this little baby seemed as natural as it could be. This baby grew into a young boy, learned to read and write and wrestle with dad. There was the climbing of trees and the scraping of knees and all the fun that a boy is supposed to have. He grew taller and some things started changing, like his complexion and the sound of his voice. 
There was work to be done as a carpenter's son, and all the neighbors said, he's such a fine boy. But this boy made the angels sing. And this boy made a new star shine in the sky. This boy had come to change the world. This boy was God's own son. This boy was like no other one. This boy was God with us. This boy was Jesus. What a miracle that God became a human being in Jesus and came to earth to be with us. Jesus was born in ordinary circumstances. He was born in humble surroundings. Jesus was born with no place to call home for a while, born in a stable surrounded by animals. Soon he had to run for his life with his family, fleeing to Egypt so that he wouldn't be killed by Herod. Jesus' upbringing back in Nazareth was normal and humble too. Jesus is humble enough to know what you've been through and all that you are going through now. He's humble enough to know what keeps you awake at night. He's humble enough to know what it's like to spend a night cold and hungry. He's humble enough to have felt the sting of death, the tears of sorrow, the anger caused by injustice. You might think that because Jesus became one of us, that we would have really identified with him, really accepted him. But John tells us, as do all the other gospel writers, that that's not what happened. The problem was, even though it was Jesus who created us, we didn't recognize who he was. The word, Jesus, was turned away by many people. John says he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How does this even happen? How did we miss it? I think it's because of darkness. All of humanity suffers from spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are and who we belong to. In fact, the Bible says that we prefer darkness, and the reason is that our deeds are evil. It's crazy, I think, because one of the biggest fears that people have is being afraid of the dark. I remember when I was a little boy myself, I had to sleep with the light on in the hallway and my bedroom door open so that that light would shine into my room and it would never be dark. I was afraid to go down into the basement because it was dark down there. But then you get a little older, and it crosses your mind that you want to do something wrong. And what do you do? You want to do it under the cover of darkness, don't you? Why do we fear the light? Because it lets you see what your life really is. And a lot of us cannot handle seeing our life as it really is. Because it's easier to hide the dark parts of who we are our inconsistencies, our bad habits, our dark side. It's easier to hide them than to have to deal with them. But you see, that causes this incredible contradiction in who we are as people. We appear to be one thing on the outside, but inside, we're really something else. 
And so we try to hide who we really are from others, sometimes even from ourselves. We try to appear as though we really are good people. We keep those things hidden in the closet, and that's why we hide our codependent habits, our addictions. That's why we sneak around when we are doing something wrong. We want to walk in the light, but there's this terrible inconsistency inside of us. We want to appear as good people, but inside we are sinful, dysfunctional, incongruent with who we want to be. The only way we can continue to live in the darkness is if we reject Jesus. And people rejected him from the beginning. The innkeeper rejected Jesus and his parents, and he didn't even know who they were. We can only imagine what must have gone through the innkeeper's mind as he rejected Jesus, claiming it was too crowded to let a pregnant woman give birth inside his inn. My friends, the world is always going to be too crowded to receive Jesus because we are crowded with deadlines and headlines, with phone lines and long lines, with our full itineraries, full schedules, with our jam-packed lives. Yes, when Jesus became a man, many people rejected his teachings. Some even began plotting a way to get rid of him, and eventually he was betrayed tried, condemned, and crucified on the cross. Of course, not everyone turned away from Jesus. Many people turned to him. It started with just a few, then more until it grew to a multitude. And then his followers grew into the thousands, then the millions until today, there are more than two billion followers in the world. John, the writer of the gospel, is counted as one of those first followers. John was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh. He saw the healings for himself. He witnessed the miracles. He heard the teachings. He experienced forgiveness. He saw his death, but he also saw his resurrection. John is telling us that only one man in the history of the world was God in human form, and that man is Jesus. He is the only man who has ever lived a sinless life so that when his perfect blood sacrifice was made on the cross, he satisfied the debt of sin for you and for me. Jesus died the death that you and I should have suffered on account of his sin. And in place of our sin, Jesus offers us his righteousness instead when we surrender to him and put our faith in him and follow him. We are not made right with God because of anything we have done or could ever do. We're not made right by how we live or by trying to earn God's favor. But we are only made right with God when we put our faith and trust in God's grace made real, made flesh for us in Jesus. And when we do this, it's amazing 
what happens next? Jesus invites us to personally enter into his story and to make his life and his love real for the world. You see, the first incarnation became visible in the little town of Bethlehem. The second incarnation becomes visible through you and through us, the church. You may have heard it said that you may be the only Jesus some people will ever see. Because you see, when you open your heart to Jesus, you're changed forever. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to him And Jesus wants to use you to help others know him and experience him too. Some years ago, I went on a mission trip to New Orleans to help in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. I remember meeting an old woman there who had lost her home in the storm. She'd lived on a corner lot and she had lived in her home for a long, long time, but the storm had taken everything she had ever had. I remember listening to her tell her story. She told about how she had just about given up all hope and how she had just about given up on God too until the work team came and helped her. She saw Jesus at work in us and she saw Jesus in people coming to help her. She said it meant so much to her that we had come to where she was, that we hadn't tried to minister from far off, from a distance, that we talked to her, that we got to know her, that we didn't stay far away. We sought to identify with her as best we could by spending time with her, by working with her. We were incarnational for her. At last Sunday's ASP spaghetti lunch after church, I went and a video was shown of a woman whose home had been saved from being condemned by an ASP work team. And she said almost the exact same thing as that woman did so many years ago from New Orleans. But you know what? You don't have to travel far away from home to incarnate Jesus for someone else to see. We can do it right here in the IHM home for families who are temporarily homeless, for whiz kids to give kids a leg up. You can do it at work or at school, in your neighborhood, even in your own home. God himself put on human flesh and came into our world in Jesus Christ. And he wants to make his word become flesh through you. As we reflect on John's telling of the Christmas story, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, let us not forget that we too are called to put on the flesh of the body of Christ and to be Christ for the world. Let's renew our promise to be the body of Christ so that the world can see Jesus in the flesh, living through us on earth as he is in heaven. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh. And we pray this day, Lord, as your word has been both read and proclaimed to us, that you would put flesh on those words in a new and revelatory way 
that we might become the incarnation of your very divine self, Lord, in this earth as we go forth to serve as individuals and collectively as your body, the church. May others see you living and alive in and through us so that they might see something that they want too and be drawn to you and to your light. Lord, help us to turn the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.